0: All right, let's just jump right in here. What do these names have in common? Harvey, Irma, Jose, Katie, Lee, and Maria. That's right, they are the last group of hurricanes to form in the Atlantic, most of which have caused billions of dollars in mass devastation in America and the Caribbean and killed dozens of people in the process. Now, if you look back over the past few weeks, it might seem that we're living in a milder version of the movie A Day After Tomorrow, and it's pretty scary stuff. So I decided to talk to one of the leading experts on hurricanes in the Atlantic, Phil Klotzbach, who's a research scientist at the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. Phil is going to explain what's actually going on with all these deadly hurricanes, what to expect for the rest of the hurricane season, how to read what is a big hurricane and what isn't, and if these storms are getting worse because of global warming and climate change. But before I jump into my fascinating discussion with Phil, I'm going to sit down with my editor John Kelly from Vanity Fair to discuss some of the news that took
1: place this week. So uh, thanks for joining us, John. Nick, it is no exaggeration to say this is the honor of a lifetime. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about you this week, though, because... Of Of course, We just learned, of course, now I know, it's true, as I do every week, but in particular this week because we're finding out a lot more information about the Mueller investigation and one of the really important news drips this week is that Mueller is going after Facebook and presumably Twitter and other social media platforms uh, in what has been described as a red hot fashion. I, I've sort of been thinking of Mueller as Michael K. Williams in The Wire. You know, Omar's coming. And everyone, like, you know, runs into the corners and, and and burrows the hatches. But it does seem like Silicon Valley might be getting their comeuppance. What do you think?
0: I think that, um, sadly, there is not going to be a comeuppance for Silicon Valley. I, I, um, you know, I think that they are uh, just as much to blame in this whole thing as Russia is, if not more, um, because they kind of left the the doors open and let let them come in and rummage around and do whatever the heck it is that they wanted to do. Um, But it doesn't seem that, you know, that there's going to be any repercussions other than, um, oh, well, we messed up there. Um, you know, I mean, is Mark Zuckerberg going to go to jail? You know, is he going to get a fine that is actually substantial? You know, is there... What's going to happen from this? Right. And, and from as far as I can tell, um, even in the best-case scenario, um, it ends up being kind of like an embarrassment that, that ends up just getting put on the list of embarrassments that, that came before all these social networks.
1: Well, to play devil's advocate for a moment, it, it does seem to me like... Zuckerberg and and maybe Dorsey and and, and maybe others do face some uh, ramifications in 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 that there is a, a tide of popular sentiment that is now flowing against them for you know forever. These Silicon Valley behemoths have been darlings. They, 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 they're not thought of the way traditional uh, monolithic companies have been in the United States. They're not U.S. steel. They're, they're, they're not objects of, of, of DOJ fascination. They're these former unicorns that, that users love, that millennials believe in. But it does seem now that Mueller's persistent fixation on these platforms could... You know, legitimately change the way users think of them. Don't you think that's that's fair? That 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 might be a, a long-term uh, ramification. No. <laughs> so I'm just I'm sorry. You no, don't, you, you don't think that you don't think Mark Zuckerberg's going to not run for president now because I, he's, I think maybe, he's fearful that people think that he's the guy get with Donald Trump.
0: I think maybe Mark will wait to run for president, if or governor or or you know local high school council, whatever it is he's doing these days. But um, but no, I look. Uh, literally there are there is a quarter of the planet on Facebook, fully aware, right that that every single thing you do is put into a database where the company knows more about you than any any government agency in history, where they use all that information to target ads to you, to know what you're going to click on before you're going to click on it, to provide things in your newsfeed and so on and so forth. And and no one, no, you know, even, even if you say, okay, we know for a fact, and we do know for a fact that Russia took advantage of Facebook's, you know, algorithms and ad platform and so on and so forth to to put fake news and fake pages um, in, in front of Americans, which which swayed the vote, arguably, some people actually believe that it is it was the deciding factor because it was such a, a hair thin line of what did sway the vote in, in favor of Trump, um, the electoral college. but but have you heard anyone being like i'm going to quit using facebook because of that no it's it's i think that the uh, you know in in all seriousness the best case scenario actually for how this could all play out is that Um, is that these companies, um, could have to actually face some real regulation. And I think that they should, you know, um, Facebook, for example, always says that it is not a monopoly because Twitter exists and Google plus exists. I don't think that Google plus and Mm -hmm. Twitter are competitors to (laughs) Facebook. Um, I don't think Snapchat is really even a truly a competitor to Facebook. It is a monopoly, um, unlike any monopoly we've ever seen before in history. And, um, and yet, the, the traditional old monopoly rules do not apply to it. And I think that you know, if, if Mueller really wants to actually avoid anything like this from happening again, the, the, this company and these companies need to be regulated. They need oversight, and and um, in the same way that uh, we had to do that with um, with you know these old blue chip industries decades ago, I think it's it's time that these things happen to uh, to these tech companies.
1: Nick, you talk to people who work at these companies, who have worked at them, and in some cases you have uh, talked to people who've, who've run them, do you think that they really don't care about these issues? You wrote a column last week in, in which you pointed out that there are 20,000 people that work at Facebook. They're some of the smartest people in the world, and a lot of them work in ad tech, and yet it seems like to an outsider, at least, no one blew the whistle on the fact that organizations were allowed to buy ads on the platform targeting people who search for phrases like "Jew haters." That's crazy. Man. That, that that's absurd. Do these companies just think like, "Oh, that's small potatoes. We're not going to worry about that. We're, we're we're making so much money. Let's move beyond it."
0: I think that the 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 problem is that they don't actually um, they don't experience these things negatively. A lot of those twenty thousand plus people, you know, this all goes back to the diversity problems in the tech industry. Um, they don't th- these are not people these are people that went to stanford and harvard and yale um that have phd's in in you know machine learning that um live ver- live in literally the um the most expensive zip code on the planet um and uh and yet and so they don't they don't face the problems that most americans do face and most people do face around the globe and so therefore right. i don't think that they Think about these things to, to look for them. I mean, it's like we, when I write a column or an article about something that bothers me that I've experienced on from a tech from a tech standpoint. It's because I've experienced it, and I I, I can see viscerally. I remember when I got divorced years ago and mm-hmm. experienced what it was like to be on social media going through that process, and it was painful, and it it was like. Oh God! De- yeah, not really. Not designed for that for that experience. And I remember speaking to a friend at Facebook, and I said, "Who worked there?" And this is this is years years ago. And I said, "Have any of your colleagues gone divorced?" He said, "No, most of them aren't even married yet." And so they hadn't. Ex- no one had experienced that, and therefore there, were, there was. They had never built anything to try to resolve that problem. And. When it comes to these kinds of anti-Semitic things and this, and this anger and this hate and so on and so forth, um, uh, in the same respect, uh, they they don't experience it on a daily basis and therefore don't look at it. And I think that I think that one, one of the things that's so frustrating and has been so frustrating for so long covering this industry is that these are companies that I mean, look at the top ten most valued companies in the in the world today, and the majority of them are tech companies. Um, and mm-hmm. they have so much money, you know. Mark Zuckerberg. If you look at the top eight um, richest people on the planet, it's it's mostly tech folks. Um, those those top eight richest richest people have as much wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion people on the planet. Right? They have so much money they 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 literally don't can't even give it away quick enough. Um, and. Um, And yet,
1: you're making it sound kind of good, but okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, but but at the same, but and and so they have all this money, and yet they don't have. There's no team at Facebook or at Google that is like looking at ethics and how their how the company can be used Mm -hmm. against them, um, or Twitter or any of these places. And I think that that to me is just is just mind
1: boggling. Sam Biddle uh, noted on The Intercept last week that. Zuckerberg should be forced to go before Congress to talk about the role that Facebook uh, played in Russia's propaganda efforts. To be clear, it's increasingly obvious that Russia played a significant role in the election. So did many other things, including um, Hillary Clinton's many campaign managers and associates and, and, um, and layers of Onion advisors. But, it does seem like a number of, inc- of the smartest people in the world, including a number of people you just kind of name-checked right there, were implicated here. Do you think there's any chance that Zuckerberg does one day go before Congress? And playing out the hypothetical, is that the sort of humbling that you think would be required to, to force a reckoning? Because it does seem like Zuckerberg, who is younger than we are, has been maturing a lot in the last Five years. He's a father. He's about to be a father again. He, he he's opened this massive philanthropy business. Is, is he going to evolve into the global responsibility of Facebook?
0: I think he. I think he wants to. I, I do actually think he wants to. I think part of the reason he spends so much time with Bill Gates is um you know Bill Gates was once the 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 dumb brash not dumb but the brash and aggressive. Um, you know, CEO that I think Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. once was, and um, and you know became the richest person in the world, and and then was like, wait a second, I really have to do something good for this for the, for the planet, and has been doing that, mm. and um, uh, and has become actually quite admired for 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 what he does with his money and his philanthropy and so on, and and him and Mark Zuckerberg have actually kind of developed quite a relationship, and I think that. That there you know I was actually speaking to someone from Facebook earlier today, um, a former executive there who was telling me that um, that a lot of the the first one hundred and fifty or so people that worked at the company after the election um, they 've been depressed and they 've been kind of questioning the role that they played in, not, in in not stopping something like this from happening and not allowing a a comp- another government agency to kind of use the tools built by them to disrupt our democracy and uh, and I I asked the the, the 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 former employee I said you know is mark upset about this is 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 he does it mm-hmm. keep him awake at night and 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 apparently he is and part of it is they they just changed their um their mission statement um uh it's the first time they've done that in 10 years um and um to to have more of a kind of a global Thought process, um, right. and um, and so I do think it is something that they think about, and it is something that that keeps them up at night. And I think that, um, uh, but it's but it's still you know, the election happened. Um, how many months ago is it now? Is it eight months or something like that? I mean, uh, ten months ago. Yeah, and almost almost a year. Almost a year, and um, yeah, ten. Uh, and um, and yet, you know, almost a year later, they're still people finding the ability to target ads to people based on if they use the N-word or, say, Jew-haters and things like that.
1: You know, one of the things that we, we've talked a lot about privately that is just sort of fascinating to me is that our culture generally um, hates Wall Street as a result of the 2008 um, financial crisis and, and, and the housing bubble and the way that the big banks behaved. It, it doesn't always hate them for the right reasons. It, it may not it really may not hate them at all in some sectors. But there's a, a general animus towards bankers and the banking system as being corrupt, as, as shifting money to the very top and, and depriving um, you know percent of the country of of uh, a decent way of life. Silicon Valley is making way more money now and the wealth is just as concentrated if not more so why do people not despise silicon valley is it because they understand the products and that and they like them because from the face of it you think that These people are, in a public narrative sense, even more despisable. They're younger, they're smarter, they they don't necessarily have to work as many hours um, once their products are launched because of the the economies of scale. Do you have any sense why our our culture is so antagonized bankers and it seems to give a pass to to, uh, technologists?
0: It's a great question. I I think part of it is that they love the products that these technologists make, Um, you know, when it comes to… Banking on Wall Street, you can't necessarily say you love your bank, um, unless you're Jamie Dimon. Uh, um, you, you, uh, but yet I, I love my iPhone and I like the fact that I can connect with my, you know, my sister and nephew in the, in England um, on FaceTime or through uh, you know Twitter or whatever it is, or that I can see pictures of my friend's newborn baby on Instagram or things like that. So they. They enjoy and like the products. I think that's part of it. Another part of it is the um, is is part of the culture that goes back decades. Um, I think thirty, forty years ago, when there was a struggle within the tech world in Silicon Valley, where a lot of people felt like they weren't working on meaningful things, and there was this there was this whole um, generation, this kind of counterculture that John Markoff at the New York Times has written about um in books and 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 so on this whole counterculture that that formed that was like we're not here for the money we're here because we believe technology can change the world and make it a better place and that became something that now people use when they go out to pitch their you know photo filter app or their um you know dog walking poop pickup service or whatever it is um and uh and so that narrative and Steve Jobs was of course the the king of pushing that narrative and I actually truly believe he didn't care about the money. He um, uh, he did care about how he was perceived by other people a lot. But um, but that narrative, I think, is the thing that, um, you know, you don't ever hear anyone on Wall Street saying, I'm here to make the world a better place. You hear them say, I'm here to make money. <laughs> right. I want that private jet. I want the helicopter. I want to get a hooker and take her in my Ferrari. It's just like, that's it. And they're, they're not ashamed of it. And... Um, and uh, and in Silicon Valley, they do all those things. They have more private jets. Uh, they actually probably have more hookers. Um, and um, uh, and yet they they put out this this kind of persona that they're just there to make the world a better place.
1: Well, thanks for leaving me on that high note, Nick. Um. <laughs> I think I think I think you're no. I I think you're right though that that um, that uh, Silicon Valley is is still too immature in its life cycle as an industry to kind of figure out how to perfectly disrupt the asshole. You know that they they may be well on their way to to doing that, but they're probably um, uh, a generation or two off from that. I
0: I think there's also one other point that I I think that is important to add is the speed with which things happen today are are so fast. It, you can't actually keep up with them, and and I think that you know if you think about and and so I have this theory that the 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 longer time between something the deeper it becomes in your memory and it, and the deeper it is actually to consume and and so if you look at um, uh, uh, I was talking to someone at Stanford who was telling me about the statistic but if you look at during during the the, the last world wars. Um, it would take it would sometimes take two to three days for a piece of news to reach um, people in the United States from like some video clips and things like that, um uh film clips. It and today um it happens in milliseconds from the moment and sometimes it happens even before the thing has happened, like earthquakes are sometimes you know, you get alerts that there's gonna be an earthquake and then it actually happens. And and I think that um that that if you think about the life cycle of a company like Facebook, which is ten years old, um, that you have, um, or sorry, Twitter, ten years old, um, uh, all of these are around the same age. You you think back to the drama and the chaos, and Mark Zuckerberg having his business card that said "I'm CEO, bitch," and. And all the privacy debacles and all these things. But they ha- there's so many things that happen so quickly, it's like you can't keep up. And it's the same with the Trump news, where where every day there are 50 news things that happen, news cycles that happen, whereas 10 years ago, there would have been that many in a month. And and you tend to kind of forget about these these bad things that happen. And, and right now, Facebook, um, you know, for a while had been looked at as as kind of like they'd grown up and, and gr- grown out of those things, and now they're kind of back where they started facing that same problem again. But, but you know, in six months, will we remember?
1: Yeah, no, you're right that uh, we're overwhelmed by this news, and it's hard to remember. But this pertains to the last question I wanted to ask you, which is the future of a lot of these companies, it seems, and in some cases it's it's becoming increasingly the present, is content of their own, or at least uh, co-produced content as they continue to grow, they're going to need people to be on their platforms longer to keep advertisers happier, to keep the stock price higher, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to probably be making their own stuff, whether that looks like what we think of as articles or what we think of as movies or what we think of as videos, you know, who, who knows, right? But, but at some point, they're going to be making more stuff. Do you think that once we get to that eventuality, these issues will be a bigger deal where indeed people find out that You know the the movie they made is is being advertised against by um, some company that's that's searching for awful terms or 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 will there be a whole new you know level of accountability at that point?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think that the the future is 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 very malleable at this point. Um, It it is moving so quickly, Um, but there you know and it's what's what is there's a benefit to the speed. There's not many benefits in my personal opinion, but there is a benefit of which is that. Um, that the, whoever is the big player, whoever is doing the right thing, whoever is, um, uh, um, is, is new and ferocious, um, has the ability to sway and change the course of things. And you saw this, you saw this just this week with the Emmys, um, you know, uh, before a, a week ago, um, would you have people wouldn't have been really talking about hulu as the the place that you wanted to get your next um if you were in hollywood there's the place you wanted to get your next uh, tv show on but now that they won an emmy it's like well forget about am is for best drama forget about amazon and netflix hulu is now one of the big players and and that's that happened just in a in in the snap of a finger and i think that um uh that's going to be the the case for for all of these sites and what they do and how they how they treat their consumers and customers in, in in the next couple of years, and I think that they are becoming increasingly aware of that. Um, and uh, and they are they're they're all they're all nervous. They're all scared about about who can do something better than them and who can do it in a in a more ethical way. And the question is is will that change the way that they do they, they do business moving forward?
1: Yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, it, it it's um, it's going to get ugly though because they're going to be competing with each other to yeah, do that completely.
0: Fun, fun, fun.
1: I know, really. uh, Who says these are dark times?
0: (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Nick. Thank you for uh, taking the time to come on and chat. Now I'd like to introduce you to Phil Klotzbach, a research scientist at the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me in the program.
0: Yeah, of course. So, so I, I wanted to jump in um, straight away with let's talk about some hurricanes. So, um, uh, so right now, I, I just was following your Twitter and uh, see there's another hurricane. Is this um, how many is this now in the season that we that we're up against?
2: Yeah, so this is our, our seventh hurricane of the year, um, and an average season has about six. So we're already had more than we have in an average overall season. It's obviously been, as most of the people probably have paid, paid any attention, certainly know it's been a very active season. And now we have Hurricane Maria, which actually just reached a major hurricane intensity and um, is threatening um, first some of the Leeward Islands and then headed up towards the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. So um, another very serious storm likely to threaten or threatening the Caribbean right now.
0: So when you when you track these things, um, are you what kind of you know, it's so fascinating to see how these things are some are tropical storms, some become category five hurricanes, some kind of disappear off in the Atlantic. How do you how do you know what's gonna happen and, and what what kind of tools are you looking at to, to track where these things begin and where they end up and, and so on?
2: Yeah, I mean now most of the stuff is done now with um, weather models. So we have forecast computer models that will basically forecast Um, storm formation, storm intensification, but also storm track. And while the storm intensification issue is still a challenge, um, the models are getting better with it, but there's still a lot of challenges with that. But the storm tracks in general are pretty good. Um, In about two days or so, you know where the storm is going to be within about 100 miles on average. So you don't know perfectly even two days in advance. And we saw that um, with Irma um, just just a few days ago, where we weren't quite sure where the storm was going to track and where it made landfall in Florida made a big difference in the overall impacts that, that we're seeing. But that's the primary method that is used um, to forecast where the storms are going to go. And uh, since the mid-1960s, we've had satellite imagery, which allows us to be able to track the storms. Prior to that, they mostly used uh, sh- information from ships. So now they have satellite imagery where you can track the storms. And obviously, when storms are coming close to the United States or threatening islands in the Caribbean, they fly aircraft through the storm so they can get really exact measurements on the storm intensity, the storm structure, as well as exactly where the storm is located. They fly right through the eye so they can know exactly how intense it is and pretty much exactly where the storm is located as well.
0: Have you ever been on one of those aircrafts going through through a hurricane?
2: I have not. I would love to someday, but I have not yet gotten the opportunity. Most, most of the time it goes to um, individuals in the media. Um, and so since I'm not a member of the media, I have not gotten a chance to go in on one of those yet.
0: It looks completely terrifying, but at the same time, completely exciting. Uh, I, I I love watching the videos where they're just kind of bouncing around like bobbleheads in the plane. So
2: so um, yeah, it's so, it, it's pretty wild in there. It looks like.
0: <laughs> so what, one of the things that I find so fascinating about um, about what you're doing, tracking all these storms and so on and so forth, is the statistics that you that you often share um, o- online and. Um, and how they kind of relate to to previous years, are we in an era where where there are more storms that are coming where you know um, climate change want of a better description um, is affecting these storms because you know you you do say things like um you know Irma is the biggest storm since X or Y since we started recording but there are times that you know that these there are storms from like the early 1900s or the mid 1900s that that seem to have been as equally as 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 intense or um, even bigger is this is 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 there something changing that you're seeing or is it kind of just the cycle that we see
2: yeah i mean so typically especially in the atlantic there are these pretty pronounced cycles of hurricane activity where you'll go through about 20-25 year periods with many more hurricanes and then similar length periods with many fewer. And for major hurricanes, so the ones with winds of 111 miles per hour or greater, the category 3 through 5s, you can have almost double as many hurricanes for about 20-25 years and then go into a quieter period for that similar, about that same length of time. And it's not to say that every single year in an active period is active. You can have other climate factors that will diminish the... Um, the storm frequencies but you have these huge natural variability so like you said when i'm comparing this year with historical seasons and you look at some of the years that you know i'm saying it's it's the most since xyz it's years like 1893 1933 1886 some of these old years were very very active and it's a bit challenging to compare numbers exactly, because now we obviously have satellite data, we have so many more observations. Back in the early 1930s, and especially late 19, you know, 18, 19th century, you're dealing with primarily just ship observations. So um, it's harder to get the exact intensity just because you know ships weren't real keen on penetrating super strong hurricanes to give the information back to the U.S. Weather Bureau at the time. So it's a little bit challenging to compare um, the data, but there certainly have been some seasons that were very, very active in the past, but certainly 27 is right up there. It has been um, an incredibly active season so far. Um, There's been a few years slightly ahead of uh, this year. Um, Probably the most comparable years that most people will remember are 2004 and 2005. Uh, Those are also both very active seasons, and we're very active in September. Uh, The most active September historically was actually 2004. Um, So right now we're tracking about similar to what we saw in 2004 during September, um, so certainly, a very, very active season that we're seeing this year.
0: And does it seem from just from you know looking at the historical data? Um, does it seem that this that that we that uh, over the years you know whether it's this year, last year, um, the last few years that that it is becoming more intense out there because the waters are heating up and so on and so forth, or does it seem that it, it it's just kind of on par?
2: You know, when you look at the observational record, I uh, there's really there's really no, um, there's no significant trend. If you look at say either storm intensity, um, storm frequency, or some of these aggregated measures that I like to look at, like accumulated cyclone energy, which basically kind of approximates the kinetic energy generated by all the storms. If you look back since the late 19th century, uh, there's there's no trend. A lot of them are no significant trend. The trend is slightly up, but it's with the noise in the data. It's hard to be able to say confidently. Now in the future, the models generally indicate that storms potentially actually get slightly less frequent, but a little bit more intense, maybe on the order of 5 to 10% um, on average. So that that does appear to be um, in the models, at least for the forecast. And then also, um, you know, with, with whatever, if storms don't change at all, uh, we're still going to see more damage in the future because we have more people and more stuff in harm's way than we used to. And also um, – You know, if we have, assuming, you know, seeing that the sea level is rising, if those sea level level rises continue, which seems pretty likely that they will, even if the storm's strength doesn't increase any, you're going to see more inundation along the coastline, simply due to the fact that the background sea level is higher. And also, it does appear that precipitation rates in hurricanes is going up a little bit, um, so perhaps slightly stronger precipitation associated with these hurricanes. So even if the intensity of the storms doesn't change a whole heck of a lot, uh, you may you'll likely see other impacts as well from the hurricanes. Uh, but again, kind of the thing I always say is, regardless of any change in the storms themselves, we're going to see more damage and destruction simply due to the fact that there's more people and more stuff um, moving along the coast than there say was fifty, hundred years ago.
0: And so, when you say more precipitation, you mean so is that we, does that mean more floods because the, there's more rain and it lasts longer, like we saw with Harvey uh-huh. or?
2: Well, and so basically what the model show is slightly higher precipitation rates. So when it rains, it's going to rain slightly harder. In the case of Harvey, Harvey was obviously it rained hard, but the problem with Harvey was obviously was that it just didn't move. Um, And that's obviously when you have a a, a tropical storm, or at the point when when Harvey was dumping all the rain, it was a tropical storm. When those stall, um, they just drop copious amounts of rain like we saw with Harvey because it was close enough to the Gulf of Mexico uh, to basically just tap all that that warm, moist air from the Gulf. Um, but we really haven't seen any kind of trends in, say, storm speeds. Like it's not like we've seen a trend saying storms are going slower. Um, I've seen some arguments saying that that might happen in the future, but I haven't seen anything with the data that I look at to show that storms are getting slower. I looked at Gulf of Mexico storms, um, and the speeds of those has basically been the same for the last hundred years. Some little ups and downs, but nothing—certainly nothing significant.
0: So, what what is considered the worst hurricane in history? <laughs>
2: Well, it depends on what you're looking at. Um, if you're talking about in the Atlantic, the strongest storm, so the storm that had the strongest maximum winds on record was Hurricane Allen, which the winds maxed out at 190 miles per hour back in 1980. If you want to look at pressure, the lowest pressure um, in a hurricane was actually in Hurricane Wilma back in 2005. Um, the most deadly hurricane that hit the United States was in 1900. There was the Galveston Hurricane, which killed estimated eight to 10,000 people. Um, and I believe there was a hurricane in 1780, which is the highest overall death toll of any hurricane recorded in the Western Hemisphere. And that was, I believe, w- well, well into the tens of thousands, if not 100,000 people. Um, but obviously then in 1780, they really had no clue that the storm was coming. Um, so it kind of depends on what, uh, on what, on what kind of metrics you're using. But certainly Irma definitely ranks up there. It wasn't quite as strong as that one, but it was a very long, lasted a long time as a Category 5 hurricane. Um, so it certainly was, um, was up there in terms of uh, and obviously for the Caribbean especially as well as the US, it was an incredibly devastating storm. I mean, some of those islands in the Caribbean, you know, have been proclaimed uninhabitable, which is obviously a pretty um a pretty sobering statement to see with the hurricane. So and then obviously with Maria right now going on too, I mean that, that storm has potentially very significant damage first in the Leeward Islands and then as it the heads up towards the US Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, which were which were impacted by Irma, but not as significantly by Irma, but certainly with Maria, it looks like very, very significant impacts headed their way, unfortunately, in a couple of days.
0: So do you think Maria is going to make landfall in the U.S.?
2: Uh, it's too early to say for sure on that. It's, any any threats to the U.S. are um, you know, over a week away, and that's just too early to say from a modeling perspective. Um, the Hurricane Center forecasts go out five days, so that's as far off as they have you know, some confidence in the forecast skill. So certainly something the east coast of the U.S. needs to monitor. Um, you can't say for sure yes or no, but definitely something to monitor and uh hopefully the storm um will uh will go out to sea, but again, too, too early to say for sure about Maria.
0: So how so you you just listed all these dates which um uh sounds like you're you're really fun to play thriller pursuit with. Um but how do you wh- where do you do you spend your days just kind of pouring through the historical hurricane data and and remembering what happened here there and everywhere or is this just <laughs> well, is is it,
2: yeah. I mean, so there is, so I don't just know the statistics for the heck of, you know, for playing trivial pursuit. Uh, basically, so what, what, what our group does at Colorado State is we do seasonal hurricane forecasts. And so our models are based on historical data. So what we, we do is we look at historical hurricane seasons. And then what we do is look and see kind of what conditions preceded active seasons versus inactive seasons. And then you build a model looking at historical weather fields like water temperatures and pressures to try to be able to predict. Future seasons using these historical relationships. So that's kind of how you learn, you know, what all these historical years were like, what the storms were, because that's the data that you pour over every day to make these uh, kind of modeling or to make your annual seasonal hurricane forecast. And so my mentor, Dr. Bill Gray, um, who was made fundamental contributions in a large lot of areas in tropical cyclones. I remember when I came to CSU and he was rattling off all these statistics, and I thought I'm never going to be able to know, you know, all these various trivia things. But when you've been doing the data for Fifteen plus years, you kind of start to learn which years are, you know, you know which years were active, and then you remember certain storms. Obviously, some of these storms were, you know, basically game changing in, in the particular areas. So um, it's certainly, um, yeah, it's certainly. Saw, and also, I do subseasonal forecasts as well. I do, so I do two week predictions during the peak months of the season. So when you have to do the, all these forecasts, you have spend a lot of time looking at historical data to try to figure out exactly, you know. The, the future the, the past is a good way to predict the future we find
0: so has your so as technology has gotten more advanced um, uh, and you have more and more data that you can rely on, um, are your predictions accurate usually for a season?
2: Yeah, I mean in general they they're getting that so the season so we've been actually doing it this is our thirty fourth year doing seasonal forecasts, and so we do our first forecast in April. And then we put another forecast the first of June, which is the peak, of, or I'm sorry, the start of the hurricane season. And then we do a final forecast in early August, which is uh, right before the season really ramps up. And so, if you look at our forecast model skill in April, it's, it's marginal. In June, it's better, and then in August, it's generally pretty good. Um, and as you would expect, like with your day-to-day weather forecast, there's less and less that can change. From, you know, if you look at your forecast today for a week, whether a week from now, the forecast, you know, it might be okay, but it's not always that great. Whereas when you get to your forecast for tomorrow, in general, it's pretty good because there's just a lot less that can change. So, you know, with our April forecast this year, we actually thought it might be a little bit below normal. And then by August, we realized it was going to be a pretty active season. And that's just because the large-scale atmospheric conditions and ocean conditions changed in such a way that made the Atlantic look like it was going to be much more active than what we thought with our initial outlook issued in early April.
0: So when you look at, at all this information, maybe you're not allowed to discuss this because um, it's such a hot topic, but, but do you think that, that, our, that the climate is changing and that this is partially one of the results of that, what we're, what we're seeing right now happening in the Atlantic?
2: Well, I mean, it's, 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 a, little, it's a little tricky. And one thing I've definitely found out of this is that it's definitely, um, you know, everything is now very amplified due to, due to social media. Um, because we, when you actually look at the peaks of the season, so September is climatologically the peak of the Atlantic hurricane season. The last four years, so 2013 to 16, were the four quietest Septembers in a row since 1911 to 1914. So we just went through a period where September basically was almost, almost had, had very weak storms, hardly anything of significance. Most of the storms actually came late. So people in general, like for the social media thing, haven't seen a season quite like this. If we had had Twitter in 2004 and 2005, it would have lit up like a Christmas tree because we had all these storms and all these storms threatening, storms like hurricanes Katrina and Wilma and Ivan and Gene and Charlie and all these storms that did all this damage. Um, but when, like I said, when you look at the, the observational record and you go back in time, you really don't see kind of any long-term increasing trend in overall, in overall storm intensity. And part of that is because hurricanes respond to many climate factors besides the water temperatures. And as you warm the water temperatures in a global warming scenario, you also warm upper-level temperatures as well. Um, so when you're talking about stability in the atmosphere, which is one of the critical factors, it may not change stability levels dramatically, which is why when you look at the, weather, or when you look at the long-term climate models, they forecast storms to get a little bit stronger in the future, but not you know, 80 a 100% stronger or anything like that. We're not going to have 400-mile-an-hour hurricanes. And that's just because there's other climate factors that play very important roles as well. And so this year, while we have, a very, we have the Atlantic somewhat warmer than normal, we also have very low levels of what's known as vertical wind shear, which is the change in wind direction with height in the atmosphere. And because of that, these storms, like especially Irma, Maria, um, Harvey, and Jose as well, these storms can really ramp up in a hurry. Now, if, if we had the same storm, Maria, but we had instead of, um, like, Eight ten miles an hour of shear between the upper and lower levels we had twenty or thirty the storm would not be nearly as strong even if the water temperatures were the same temperature or even warmer because shear is a very very important factor and in the Atlantic typically um, what happens is when the Atlantic is warm like it is this year, we also have a lot, we also have cool conditions in the tropical Pacific so overall what that does is when the Atlantic is warmer than the tropical Pacific, that tends to force upward motion in the Atlantic and also reduce the levels of vertical wind shear, whereas if the Atlantic were warm but the tropical Pacific was also warm, we have what was known as El Nino conditions. the Pacific would be much more active and the Atlantic would end up being quieter just because you, basically what you want to look at is how the Atlantic water temperatures are compared with the rest of the globe. That's more important than just what is going on in the Atlantic by itself. So in this year we have a warm Atlantic and the tropical Pacific is actually fairly cool so that forces a lot of upward motion and causes for a very, very active Atlantic hurricane season. But if you actually look northern hemisphere-wide, so the Atlantic but also what goes on in the Pacific with the um, hurricanes in the East Pacific and the typhoons in the West Pacific, as well as the few storms that form in the Indian Ocean, overall levels this year are actually about average, and that's because when the Atlantic goes up, the Pacific tends to go down and vice versa. So when you look globally or northern hemisphere-wide this year, we're actually just about dead on average for... Number of hurricanes, major hurricanes, or um, some of these integrated measures
0: that we like to look at. So, what you're saying is essentially that there is a level of change within climate in the in globally in temperatures in the sea, temperatures in the air, and so on and so forth. But they are not necessarily creating more storms or more severe storms. It just kind of is uh, the 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 real storms are really happening on Twitter.
2: Well, it, 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 it's 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 a, it's a lot more subtle process than saying warmer waters lead to more storms because it's a lot more of it is where the warming takes place. If you warm the, When you warm the globe uniformly, um, it's different than if you warm the globe regionally. Like, for this example, this year, again, the Atlantic is warm, but the Pacific, the tropical Pacific, is actually a little bit cold, which is why you're forcing all this upward motion in the Atlantic and getting all these storms there. But if you look at the Pacific, the Northwest Pacific, so where their storms form, we actually have record warm water temperatures there, but we don't have, it's been a very quiet season, and that's because in the West Pacific, the waters are always super hot, plenty warm to support any nasty typhoon that you want. It's circulation that's much more important there. So it's, it's a lot more subtle process, I think, than, than a lot of people um, necessarily understand, is that it's not just water temperatures. It's how all these things interact and interplay with each other. And like I said, that's one of the reasons why these, Models that are used to forecast future storms show um, slight increases in storm intensity but aren't showing, you know, 400-mile-an-hour hurricanes and getting, you know, tons and tons more of these storms. Most of the models actually show maybe perhaps fewer fewer hurricanes, but but the storms that form might be slightly stronger. So, again, I think there's still some uncertainty. And, again, I think it's just because when you're looking at the observations, which is what I do, there's a lot of noise in those observations, and there's also a lot of... um, Observational improvements that have come, that have come over time that make detecting these trends harder to see than, say, looking at things like global temperature, sea ice, sea level rise, things like that, where the observations are a lot more straightforward and it's a lot more straightforward kind of, you know, ascertaining that humans are causing noticeable impacts in those. Once it comes to hurricanes, it gets a lot more. Um, it's a lot. It's just a lot more noisy.
0: So, when you, um, uh, how how did you get into tracking hurricanes? What was were you was this something you grew up wanting to do when you were a little kid?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts, and in 1985, Hurricane Gloria came through, um, through Connecticut, but brought enough significant winds that it uh really kind of got me interested in hurricanes. And I was kind of born with what they say is the defective weather gene, you know, one of those things where I've always just been obsessed with the weather since I was very little. I remember having my dad print out maps of the U.S., and he'd drawn fronts on them and stuff. And I was always obsessed with kind of hurricanes and growing up in Massachusetts, nor'easters, and then kind of as I got older, I got more and more interested in the in the hurricane aspect of things. So I've been... Yeah, tracking hurricanes for a very long time, and uh, probably will uh, will continue to do, hopefully continue to do so as long as I can.
0: And do you, um, when you uh, when you track these storms, uh, you you know uh, you're at, at, uh, um, at the university um, working on this stuff. Do you guys, do, do you and all your uh, coworkers just sit around and talk about all these statistics all day long? Is it like a kind of a, a statistic off and to see to, to discussing the width and the, the barometric pressure and all these different things?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think one thing, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about more is, you know, this year, especially I think, you know, with, with everything, whether it be hurricanes or, you know, any weather event, or, you know, if somebody sets a record for uh, running a race or, you know, throwing touchdown passes, I want to know, okay, he did this. How does that compare with what's happened in the past? And so I think that's important. That, I think, is one of the things I try to provide with on, on, on Twitter is just, okay, you know, this is... People want to know, say, for example, this Hurricane Maria is headed towards Puerto Rico. When was the last time a major hurricane hit Puerto Rico? When was the last time a cat four hit Puerto Rico? Because, you know, not every not everyone knows off the top of their head. And, I mean, I had to admit, I had to do that look this morning and kind of confirm in my mind which were the last ones. So it's, it's important to kind of have these things to put these storms in perspective. Because so I think otherwise people kind of assume one, either it hasn't happened before just because it hasn't happened in the social media era, but if something hasn't happened before that's important to know too. Um, It's important when there are records set to acknowledge them because that's the kind of stuff that's, you know, it's important to keep track of all these things because obviously if we weren't keeping track of global temperatures and things like that, we wouldn't necessarily know you know that humans are having as noticeable of an impact as we do, but by keeping track of all these things and measuring them constantly um, and updating our records as best we can, it's obviously important to kind of keep tabs on all these things going forward.
0: So what, one question I have about the actual storms is, um, I've seen you on social media talk a lot about the barometric pressure, and I think a lot of people get really interested in the wind speed and things like that. What role does the pressure take in, in, um, in the potential devastation of a storm?
2: Yeah, so pressure is basically, basically winds are a function of the barometric pressure. So basically, if you think about a hurricane, um, you have, low pressure, very low pressure in the center of the hurricane, and then you have kind of just what basically called the environmental or kind of the average pressure over the Atlantic Ocean if there were no hurricanes. And so if your average pressure, say, is 1,010 millibars or 1,013 millibars and your pressure in your hurricane is 930 millibars, you have to have wind that blow to kind of equalize that pressure gradient out. So if you have a very low pressure, that typically means a much stronger storm in terms of its maximum wind. If you have a storm like Irma, its pressure was low, but it wasn't as low as you would have expected for a Category 5 hurricane. And that's because the pressure surrounding the storm, when it was, when it was early on, the pressure surrounding the storm was very high. So the, high, the pressure was higher in the environment than you would normally expect. Now, as storms get older, they typically grow in size. So when these hurricanes go through with some of these eyewall replacement cycles, they typically grow with size. So What's an eyewall replacement cycle? Also, yeah, so basically hurricanes over time, uh, when you have a hurricane in the center, has an eye. And over time, the eye tends to shrink. And as the eye shrinks, uh, eventually it can't process all the air trying to flow into the center of the storm. And consequently, that eye, the inner eye, will collapse, and you'll get a secondary eye, which will form at an outer radius and then kind of come in and replace it. And so if you look at the hurricane center, they will talk about these eyewall replacement cycles that occur. But over time, these storms tend to grow in size, such that when you have a storm like Irma, which was out there, it seemed like forever, by the time it hit, uh, hit Florida, it was a very large in size storm. Um, so it had a very large area of hurricane-forced wind associated with it. And so as the storm gets larger, you need a lower pressure to support the same winds. Uh, a good case in point of that is Hurricane Sandy back in 2012 uh it made it was it had winds of about 75 miles an hour as it was coming on shore but its pressure was lower than some category 4s and that's because it was a massively large storm so even though the pressure at the center was very low the gradient between the pressure at the center and the pressure that was that was kind of the environmental pressure was spread out over such a large area so basically the winds at the center weren't particularly strong, but had this massive area of tropical storm force winds. I think it extended out like 400, 500 kilometers from the center. So it was just a monstrously large storm. Um, so, again, it didn't have necessarily super strong winds at the center, but it was a huge in size storm. So it had a huge storm surge associated with it, which is one of the reasons why people will say the storm is a Category 3 or 4 and they want to know what the maximum winds are. But that's only one factor with storms and the amount of devastation that they cause. The size of the storm is also very important. A very small in size storm, while doing incredible devastation where it hits, the area of devastation could potentially be a lot less than a, a somewhat weaker storm, category wise. Um, but if it's much larger, it can have a much larger storm surge impact, um, rainfall impacts, as well as um, as well as um, just the area of the wind field being much larger.
0: So, um, uh, last couple of questions, and then we'll let you get back to your storm tracking. What um, you 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 have um, uh, you often share satellite imagery? Um, are you getting the imagery in real time, and where does it come from?
2: Yeah, so I mean, the the, the, all, the all the data I get from NOAA, um, and so there's a there, so there's there's a new satellite that was recently launched, um, which actually has satellite imagery that's updated. Um, they have global imagery that's up or. Hemispheric-ish wide-scale imagery. It's updated about every 15 minutes, but they have these, they call these floaters, where they'll basically have updated imagery that comes in about every minute. Um, and so this this imagery is at very high resolution, so you can see things like um you can see these storms moving pretty much in real time at a super high resolution, and it's only it lags real time by a couple of minutes. So um, there's a variety of websites. Uh, so at Colorado State, um, our satellite branch built a super cool website that has really ways of viewing this stuff in real time. Um, there's also a variety of other, often universities, um, have built these cool kind of ways to view all this uh, super high-resolution data in near real time. Um, and then also NOAA has some resources from the current operational satellites, uh, which is in a little less frequent, or it, it, it's, it's, it's not as high-resolution, it's not as frequent, uh, but I often will grab those just because they're quick and they're easy and they're fast to post on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, you have to kind of you know shrink the files and everything to get in the post because Twitter doesn't like it if you try to post a you know 100 megabyte animated GIF. Doesn't get too happy with that.
0: And so then you take all you take all that information and and what kind of computer systems do you guys use to model these things? Is it proprietary or is it like off the um, shelf? No,
2: I mean so I I mean I pretty much just do for my for me personally I just do statistical modeling. So I just have a, 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 my own laptop. But if you're talking the government or the forecast models that say, you know, people say, where's the storm going to go? Those forecast models are run on supercomputers, um, sort of various labs around the country. And there's obviously other models run from other countries and other um, government agencies around the world that are looked at, too. So when you see the official forecast from the Hurricane Center, what they use is they use all these different models that are run both in the U.S. and internationally. They'll look at all those. And then the forecasters who are – these are like the, the – the smartest hurricane people on the planet what they do is they then look and see they'll pick all the models and then they use their own expert insights and what they know about hurricanes to um to basically kind of come up with their best estimate so they usually will use a blend of the various model outputs with their own kind of personal insights into what they think the storm's going to do to come up with the uh with the final forecast so when you see that cone and the track um there's a lot of there's a lot of uh brain power that goes into coming up with that it's a, it's a it's a challenging thing but those guys are certainly the best in the business and the, the modelers have really improved the uh, the track forecast as well and if you look at the kind of historical skill of the hurricane tracks from the national hurricane center pretty much every year they just get better and that's just because we basically the modeling is getting better and we're able to run these models at higher resolution as we continue to imp- in as we continue to improve the computing power
0: so that was my 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 next question is do you you know as computer power gets better and faster and stronger and and less expensive and as we get more and more data about past storms and current storms and so on, do you think that we will get to a point where we will be able to predict? with more accuracy, what a season will look like, where a hurricane exactly will go rather than, you know, oh, it's going to be the Florida or Louisiana or whatever. Do you think we'll get to a point? And and if so, how far off do you think it is?
2: Well, I mean, again, these forecasts are getting better and better with time. And so I know the Hurricane Center is talking about right now, they go out to five days with their forecast, about extending it to seven days. Um, So obviously, a lot of storms don't even last seven days. So they would never necessarily even put out a seven-day forecast. But you know, with these long-lived storms like an Irma or like Maria, looks like she's going to last. You know, they all, they're they're planning on maybe extending out to seven days. So that shows that the you know they're getting more confident in those model skills. So, I mean, I, I don't really see any reason why we would see that kind of you know taper off. Um, for so I think individual storm forecasts, the tracks are going to get better and better. And I know they're making a lot of improvements in intensity prediction. Predicting storm intensity is still a real challenge. Um, if you look at the You verify those forecasts, they're getting better but not improving at the same rate as the uh, the track forecast. Now, my kind of thing I do is the seasonal forecast. You know, with additional years of data, that certainly helps the statistical models. Uh, The numerical models are doing some seasonal forecasting. There's still a lot of challenges, though. For example, this year, we thought in early April that an El Nino might be coming on. A lot of the models are very aggressive at calling for El Nino um, and that typically warms the tropical Pacific It increases that shearing winds in the Atlantic and tears apart storms. So early in April, we thought maybe the season would end up being very active. But obviously that El Nino never came on. The Atlantic was kind of cool in March, cooler than normal. Now it's super warm. So basically everything kind of transitioned from what we thought would make lead to a fairly quiet season to obviously what we're having now, which is, you know, a top five, top ten kind of active season.
0: Um when you say you can't predict storm intensity why why is that such a pro- so difficult
2: Well it's so when so predicting where the storm tracks is obviously challenging but it's primarily a hurricane works like a is like a pebble in a stream so if you can forecast kind of how the large scale atmosphere is 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 basically if you can forecast kind of large scale atmospheric conditions um, you can kind of forecast where the storm is going to track but hurricane intensity is a function of kind of the surrounding area. So basically, you know, what the, what the water temperatures are in front of the storm, what the winds are in front of the storm, what the moisture is like in front of the storm, but it's also heavily dependent on the storm structure itself. And sometimes you'll see a storm where the environment looks super conducive for it to intensify, and it doesn't go, and it doesn't go, and it doesn't go, and then suddenly it just goes. And we don't necessarily always know exactly what that is like because we don't still necessarily know exactly what the internal structure of the hurricane looks like at any given time. I don't think we could necessarily even know exactly kind of what structure of a hurricane means it's primed to go. So there's certainly when hurricanes do things like undergo rapid intensification. So basically, they're say 60 mile an hour tropical storm, and suddenly you know you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, and it's 110 miles an hour. Those rapid intensification episodes are, are really are still a challenge. And so there's been a lot of money set aside to really kind of go at it, and um, I believe there's hopefully some more going to be coming soon too, because there's definitely still a lot of research that needs to be done, because obviously rapid intensification is obviously incredibly important to forecast because especially if you have a storm undergoing rapid intensification, like we've seen with Maria, right about, as it's about to hit land, you know, that's a very, very serious thing. So that's definitely kind of, you know, the, the, the tracks I think will continue to incrementally get better year on, year in, year out. But I think the, obviously the intensity is really where we're um A lot of resources are being put right now and, uh, Hopefully with time, with improved computational ability as well as just improved knowledge of how hurricanes function, that should hopefully continue to improve. Again, the fork, they are getting better, but they haven't improved at the same rate as the uh, track forecasts have. And the hurricane center does keep score. So every year, at the end of the year, they do verify their intensity forecasts, their track forecasts, and they have nice plots year on year to kind of show how those are trending with time. So they're very, um, they're very transparent in everything they do, which I find really
1: nice.
0: So, last question. Um, uh, the Day After Tomorrow, the movie, worst movie ever or best movie ever?
1: <laughs>
2: uh, well, my, my boss, I, he was uh, 80, 76 at the time. I managed to convince him to go and see it, and uh, he had a few choice words for that movie. Um, you know, I haven't seen it. I saw it at the theater, and I haven't actually seen it since. I, I don't remember coming. I remember thinking the special effects were really cool, but the, uh, the science was... um. Was was a bit questionable. Personally, my favorite weather movie has been, and probably always will be, Twister. That's always been one of my that's always been my favorite.
0: Twister's the best uh, the best storm movie for storm buffs.
2: Yeah, I mean, not necessarily the science is great, but it just was a pretty classic movie. And when you have a Van Halen-based soundtrack, you really can't go wrong.
0: That's really funny. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, um, and uh, I really appreciate it. And we will be sharing your Twitter handle. What can you tell everyone? What your Twitter handle is so they can follow you when when they follow these storms in real time.
2: Yeah, yeah. So my Twitter handle is at Phil Klotzbach. So P H I L and then my last name, which is K L O T, like tiger. Z like zebra. B like boy. A C H. Uh,
0: I urge you all to follow him. It is a, it's fascinating. It's like it's like being in the day after tomorrow, but on social media. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Sure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks to my guest today, Phil Klotzbach. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of inside the hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple podcasts, Google play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at cadence 13 for their production work and my editors at vanity fair. And I will see you all next week.